I mean, that's what I'll do. I'll pick someone this week and then I'll do like an internal sunshine of the mind and just <laughs> forget and I'll never have any stress. It'll be great. there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is november 17th 2020 and i'm sarah ziegler the sports editor at 538 joining me in new york city is senior sports writer neil payne hi neil hey what's up how's it going <laughs> not not much is up what's up that was <laughs> I, that was surprising I, I don't know why that took me by surprise you know i'm just trying to change up the intros <laughs> you know me i'm always tinkering with the intros True. It's like the lead of a story, right? Yeah. Um, and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Neil. What's up with you guys? So the Masters did. So we discussed boring. how, yeah, how the, like, boring. the pre-tournament favorite never wins and, and DJ won. And there was well, he was in the uh, favorite. Bryson DJ was, was the favorite. I mean, DJ was the second favorite. I spent the entire weekend like tr- trying to combine Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas, like over and over. I kept calling him Dustin, Dustin Thomas. Thomas, and that is just not his name. And I just it was a it was a mess for me. The Masters were a mess for me. I mean, it was kind of a blowout. It was not a uh, it was not a memorable one. I'll put it that way. I mean, J- Dustin Johnson is uh, its probably no other more deserving winner of a Masters at this point. But, yeah, it wasn't exactly. I mean, Tiger's, Tiger's uh, uh, 10 on on a hole was pretty memorable. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And actually, Bryson's antics on Thursday and Friday, losing balls like in the rough and having 35 people look for them. um was was entertaining um okay moving on to our uh our our nfl survivor pool uh everybody won congrats it wasn't even the only the only sweat really was uh jeff and the packers which which i didn't i didn't know i had the packers i honestly thought i had the saints (laughs) (laughs) and i was saying on i was saying on sunday whoa Glad I'm not the person with the Packers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't like be worried about, you know, who cares what happens at the end if you don't remember you have that team. It's that's actually the way yeah, wait, you should wait approach it. Yeah. To find out whether the team that you pick <laughs> won on Sunday because you don't know which team you pick. I mean, that's what I'll do. I'll pick someone this week and then I'll do like an internal sunshine of the mind and just <laughs> forget and I'll never have any stress. It'll be great. That's it seems like a good way to live. All right. Well, so uh, the points stand at Sarah and Neil at seven, Jeff at five. The pick order. We got to break this tie. We we, we, got to get out of this tie, Sarah. No, we really do. The pick order this week is Jeff, Neil, Sarah. So so I'm screwed. Um, So, Jeff, who who are you going to pick and then forget? All right. Well, let's see. I you know, I I'm tempted. (laughs) I'm tempted to go with Sarah's not that bad Minnesota Vikings. Go for it. Fresh off a win, but <laughs> Dallas off a bye. Dallas can't be this bad. I'm going to take the Pittsburgh Steelers who are at Jacksonville. Yeah. Even though I don't feel great about it because Jacksonville, as we saw Sunday, is feisty. I, I have in my notes for my pick, 
Steelers if Jeff doesn't take them. <laughs> Just, you know, gaming out my option. I mean, it, it, it's like the chalk pick. They're the biggest favorite. So, Neil, who do you have? Yeah, I, too, have considered uh, taking your Vikings uh, against the Cowboys at home. But I think I'm going to go instead uh, the tried and true method of this game, picking against the New York Jets, especially when they're on the road. Haven't taken the Chargers yet. Chargers have been snake bit. But, I mean, it's it's against the Jets. If any team, if any opponent can give them good luck uh, rather than the bad luck they've had so far, it, it is the Jets. So I'm going to take the Chargers. At what point do you stop being snake bit and you just don't know how to win football games? Is my question on the Chargers. <laughs> could happen this week. I've, I'll be rooting for it. Oh so boy, it could you imagine? I mean, that you. would be the ultimate snake biting, whatever we want to call <laughs> I mean, it. At this point, yeah. <laughs> so with my pick, I am left to just take the Vikings. It's yes. Wow, so you are yes. going to do it. Well, we will never hear the end of this if Dallas wins. I mean, again, I feel like it's it'll work either way for me. Either, yeah, either my team comes through and gives me the point, and like comes through, or they lose and I can, you know, mope around on the podcast. So really, what's uh, (laughs) there's no downside for me. Downside for the listeners. Sorry, guys. Um, Yeah, the Vikings. I don't know. Last night's game was so just ugly and dumb and like classic (laughs) well it was a bears game it was a bears game the bears had like 149 yards total offense but but had a kickoff return for a touchdown because of course that's the only way they're gonna score they i i can honestly say their offense is worse than the jets offense there i mean it's pretty bad my the only thing i was saying last night aside from stop running the damn ball which mike zimmer ignored me um was please let the vikings beat the bears so the bears are no longer in this like are they a contender conversation because they're not and we can just stop instead the vikings are a contender no they're not i know they're in the like in the hunt graphic on nbc and i'm like no they're not that is a lie All right. On today's show, we'll talk about this busy, busy week in the NBA. Anthony Davis waived his option in Los Angeles. Chris Paul has already been traded to Phoenix. And by the way, the draft is tomorrow. So a lot's going on. We'll do our best to survey it all. Then we'll take a look at the historic hiring of Kim Ang as general manager of the Miami Marlins, what that means for baseball, and the prospects of equity in hiring for coaches and GMs more generally. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. You'd be forgiven for thinking that the break would be a little bit longer, but the 2020-2021 NBA season is set to begin December 22nd, Monday, which was yesterday, if you're keeping track, saw the end of the trade moratorium and the first of a flurry of trades to be completed. Wednesday, that is tomorrow, is the NBA draft, conducted virtually, of course. On Friday, free agency negotiations can officially start, and on Sunday, free agents will actually be able to sign with teams. Training camps open on December 1st, two weeks from today. That's right, December is in two weeks. Holy crap. We are cramming events that usually take place over the course of a couple of months into just a couple of weeks. The biggest trade so far saw the Oklahoma City Thunder trading superstar Chris Paul and former Cyclone Abdel Nader, just for the record, to the Phoenix Suns for Kelly Oubre, Ricky Rubio, Ty Jerome, Jalen LeCue, and a 2022 first round draft pick. 
On ESPN SportsCenter, Adrian Wojnarowski was very positive about the Suns' ability now to immediately compete in the West. And now the Suns and Robert Sarver in the Western Conference, they become a real factor in this Western Conference race. Devin Booker very much wanted Chris Paul uh, uh, in this trade and, and really pushed the organization. And now Chris Paul is headed uh, in a package that I'm told is going to include Ricky Rubio, uh, uh, Kelly Oubre, uh, Jalen LeCue, a 2020, uh, a 2022 first-round pick from Whoa. Phoenix to Oklahoma City, who now have 17 first-round picks Whoa. between now and 2026, uh, and Ty Jerome, who was a draft pick of theirs last year. Uh, but the Suns, who played great in the bubble this summer with Monty Williams, Chris Paul, this is the first time in a very long time Robert Sarver has had this kind of leadership uh, with this organization, and, and Chris Paul gets a chance to be uh, with a, a, a young team with very much of an upward trajectory in the Western Conference. Oklahoma City now has 17 first-round picks over the next seven drafts, and they made the playoffs this year. That is wild. 17 first-round picks. We all thought when Paul was traded to the Thunder last year that he wouldn't stay there long, though a lot of people thought he'd be out the door during the season. Now that he's actually moving on, let's analyze this trade. Neil, who do you think is better set up for success? The Suns with Paul or the Thunder and their young core and, you know, bazillion draft picks? Uh, I mean, probably the Suns, if we're talking about short term, like next season, uh, but probably the Thunder going forward in the long term, because like you said, they have a ridiculous number of picks. And I mean, they played this so perfectly. Uh, If you think about the way that when they got Chris Paul, the question was going to be, oh, uh, this is an untradeable contract. How are they going to get rid of him? People weren't even sure they were going to be good, which we, our model actually did think that the Thunder would be better than everyone was saying. And they were that, you know, don't want (laughs) to toot our own horn too much, but uh, you know, because Chris Paul is a high rated player. He's still a very effective player that makes a team better. And that's probably what, uh, you know, why the Suns are kind of going uh, in on him right now. But if you had said, you know, at any point uh, last season or, you know, last off season or whatever, that the Thunder would trade Chris Paul making nearly $40 million a year and that somebody would have to give up a first round pick in the deal, you would think, oh, probably the Thunder would have to give it up to sweeten things, you know, to get somebody to take that contract. Instead, they managed to somehow get the first round pick in the deal to add to the, you said, 17 uh, picks that they have. And it's just a ridiculous haul. It makes me think about, you know, the Celtics after that Nets trade uh, and, and maybe like the the Sixers at the at the height of the process. If we're talking mm. about uh, draft capital on one team at the same time, I haven't actually kind of gone back and quantified it, but it has to be among the most valuable collection of, of picks uh, that a team ever had over you know a handful of, of drafts going forward. And yet, also like you said, this was not a bad team last year. They made the playoffs. They were top ten defensive team. I mean, there's just so many assets. And they 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 hang on to Shea, who's they're gonna they can build around him, who who seems to be a star in the making, and who knows what they do with that? I mean, I, I, they're probably not going to use all seventeen picks because they don't have that many roster spots. Uh, <laughs> but they can bundle them; they can do whatever. And we've seen Presti do this kind of thing before, so I think it's pretty shrewd on, on their part too. Yeah, I love this move for them. I think you're you're both exactly right. 
So another big trade news is, is so far about a trade that hasn't actually happened yet. Woj reported that James Harden has turned down a two-year, $103 million extension with the Rockets, chump change, and has instead demanded a trade to Brooklyn. He has apparently been talking to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving about a Nets super team. Jeff, what are the chances that actually happens? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me just because we, I mean, this is just something we've seen now. It feels like every off season. Um, so, so I, I do think there is a legitimate chance it could happen. I think Harden, you know, you look around and, you know, a lot of the Daryl Morey and, and a lot of the brain trust of Houston is all gone. So I, I don't know how much loyalty he has to that team anymore despite being obviously their star for a number of years. Um, and I, I think he obviously, you know, with Westbrook wanting to go too, it seems like, you know, there could be just an exodus. That being said, I don't think it will really work. I don't see how it will work. I mean, it, it, it sort of feels like, you know, like someone's managing their NBA 2K team with just like getting a bunch of talent and <laughs> throwing it on the court. But all these guys like need the ball. They all have very high usage rates in Durant, um, Irving, and, and Harden. I mean, Harden it basically only has the ball. Um, so I, I'm not really sure. It doesn't, quite, to me, seem like a particularly good fit. I mean, I'm still not sure how just Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving work together in the net. I mean, based on some of the comments they made also about like, some nights I'll be the coach and some nights Kevin will be the coach. And it's like, oh, this is going to go great. Uh, good luck to the actual coach, <laughs> Steve Nash. Yeah, it, it it seems like it would be a terrible fit. Yeah, Houston is going to want a lot because Harden is one of the greatest offensive players in NBA history, full stop. You know, you could make a case, maybe the greatest. I don't know if I want to get into that right now, but if we're talking about efficiency, uh, he, he might be the most efficiency maximizing player in NBA history. And you don't walk away from that lightly. Uh, and there are other teams that could offer probably more than the Nets. You know, mm -hmm. we're all waiting for that Daryl Morey. Ben Simmons for for James Harden deal or whatever they could cook up uh, with the Sixers. Uh, but I feel like there are other teams that could offer more than the Nets, uh, even if Harden wants to go there. Yeah, I mean, Houston has all kinds of problems right now, but they also are in the driver's seat with what to do with James Harden. So this, this seems unlikely. It is certainly interesting. I think we would all be fascinated to watch what happens if Harden, Durant, and Irving um, ended up together. One other trade of note that has happened so far, we are recording this on Tuesday morning, um, early, early, early Tuesday morning, there was a trade for the uh, Milwaukee Bucks traded Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, and three first-round picks to the New Orleans Pelicans for Drew Holiday. And they picked up Bogdan Bogdanovich for Dante DiVincenzo, Ursan Ilyasova, and DJ Wilson. Basically trading their entire bench for Holiday and Bogdanovich. Uh, what do you guys think of that trade? Just kind of snap judgments for that. Well, I, I think it's a, a trade they had to make because um, they have a certain player who they need to sign <laughs> a Supermax extension and um, they have to show a commitment to, to building around this team. Um, but otherwise, you know, they're going to lose their star. Yeah, I, um, I saw a tweet last night that I 
uh, loved that was this is just to keep Mike Boldenhauser from playing his bench at all in the playoffs. It's to force him to play his starters for 48 minutes in the playoffs. Um, I'm so like not totally. No yeah, that's like not actually a joke. I think. Yeah, yeah. But if <laughs> this keeps, level. if this frees up money for Giannis and if it convinces him to stay, then seems like a win for the Bucks. Yeah, and we haven't crunched the numbers on this uh, using our beloved Raptor, but I wouldn't be surprised, though, if it was not overly impressed with with the deal, though, because Raptor loved Dante DiVincenzo. He had a plus 3.7 Raptor uh, last season. George Hill had a plus 3.8 Raptor. uh, and, And so getting rid of some of those guys and then only adding, like, Bogdanovich had a plus 1.2. Eric Bledsoe uh, was a plus 2.4, whereas Drew Holiday is a plus 4.7. So you get a little bit there, but Eric Bledsoe also played a th- plus 3.7 level in the playoffs. Not saying that that's a huge sample; it's only nine games. But you know, this idea that it's some kind of like landslide or whatever. Drew Holiday, great player, very fond of him, a uh, great two-way uh, guard. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not totally sure that they come out like a huge amount. Ahead head aside from almost like that factor of having to sort of through reduced depth play your your starters more and actually put your best players on the court uh, for more of the game I also think there might be fit uh, they, they might have solved a little bit of their fit problem because they really needed a three-point shooter who was better than what they had and not including old man Kyle Korver. Um, but I think Bogdanovich helps there. Um, I mean, in Bledsoe, that's interesting that his Raptor was that high in the playoffs because the narrative around him when the playoffs was that he was bad and he did not have a good playoff. So that's, that's very interesting too. It was mostly coming on defense. It was yeah. he's plus 3.4 on defense, oh, but he oh, had oh, a positive gotcha. offensive Raptor also. Interesting. Interesting. So, yeah. So how that all shakes out will be interesting. And it it all obviously depends on what Giannis decides, because if he if he if he stays, then the trade's a win. You know, if he if he leaves, though, the trade will not have ended up mattering. All right. So let's turn to another weird thing happening, which is the draft. This is going to be such a strange year because, you know, these prospects didn't have an NCAA tournament to showcase their abilities. Some of them skipped college altogether. Jeff, how is the lack of publicly known information affecting how we expect the draft to look? I think from a fan perspective, you have a lot of fans who are maybe less familiar um, with with some of these names. I mean, some of these guys who played, you know, not very many games, if any games, uh, you know, under a sort of national spotlight, um, it, it definitely I think shapes opinions. But I think a, from a from a NBA perspective, it, it's not like they're just turning on CBS and Mar. Although sometimes it seems that way. <laughs> sometimes I, it seems that way. They're just yeah. turning on NBA college basketball March, uh, going, "Oh, who's good?" Um, <laughs> no, you know, I think they'll be prepared. I mean, I do think the draft itself is changing. Um, in terms of how these guys get to the league, you know, with LaMelo obviously uh, being the, the, you know, the marquee name who, who fits that bill, who didn't go to college, but also, you know, coming up next year with Jalen Green, um, who's widely considered to be a, you know, a top pick. And, and he went to the, the, the G League's development program or 
whatever the name is they have on that, um, you know, <laughs> taking taking money immediately on a high school. And, and it, you know, a lot of other players are, are following that route. So I think eventually, and, and this sort of just to rewind, what this, this also helps Presti because there's a chance, you know, these drafts in the next couple of years, if, if, if this, you know, the college requirement goes away, which it sort of feels like it's, it's heading that direction. If you have guys going to the G League anyway, I mean, why not just go to the NBA? I mean, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense at this point to, to maintain the one-and-done policy. So th- there are going to be loaded drafts coming up. Um, but in terms of this draft, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it won't affect anything. I mean, there's a lot of European players, there's a lot of players who haven't played in college, but I, I don't know if that necessarily hurts from a from a scouting perspective, any of these teams. Yeah, I do think you're right that it, that it's like a it's a fan problem, right? I mean, yeah, it's like we don't know who these guys are, I mean, right? Or at least me. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And I do wonder. I mean, will people tune in? Which I mean, ratings have been down for all sports and and for the NBA in particular. So you know, who knows if people were going to tune in anyway, but it is a little bit harder when it's like, well, we weren't going to watch Zion, you know, get picked. Although also we knew where Zion was going to go. So the the draft is best when it's like, there's a little bit of mystery, but you know, the players involved. And so this year we have none of that. Um, I mean, there's mystery, but we don't care, I guess. (laughs) A lot of fans I think don't care. I I do Um, think, you know, I was part joking, but um, I do think the tournament does impact the draft. We've seen, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Dante DiVincenzo, who, you know, obviously had that star caliber performance in, in the final four, you know, and then he was drafted. I mean, maybe he's not drafted without that, um, without that stage to prove himself. On the flip side, as a Michigan basketball fan, I've seen a lot of our players get way overdrafted because Michigan and, and Bayline went on a, a run, you know, the Mitch McGarry types, Adam Morrison, some of these guys who are big college stars and in in, in stars in the tournament. It's, I don't think it necessarily means one thing or the other, but it, it does impact your, your draft status. Now, that's giving me a story idea where we go back after a year to look at this draft class and see if maybe it outperformed other ones because there wasn't any of that NCAA <laughs> residual effect. I'll mark that down for a story at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, the draft is tomorrow night. And so uh, we should watch to see uh, where the players we don't know very well end up um, and and see if uh, if teams do appro- approach it a little bit differently than they may have in previous years. OK, I think we can end this discussion here for now. We'll be back in a moment to talk about baseball. Last Friday, the Miami Marlins hired Kim Eng as their new general manager. Eng makes history as just the first Asian American and just the second person of Asian descent to run a team. Farhan Zahidi, president of baseball operations for the San Francisco Giants, is the other. She is the first female GM, not just in baseball, but in any of the four major American men's sports. So we thought we'd take a look at the state of diversity in coaching and what Eng's hire might mean for it. On the ESPN Daily podcast, Pablo Torre spotlighted the decades of experience Aang brings to the role and the decades of prejudice she's battled against. It was around midnight on November 13th, 2003, inside the Biltmore in Phoenix during Major League Baseball's GM meetings. And Kim Aang was mad. 
She'd been at the hotel bar with her colleagues when Met scout Bill Singer, the former all-star pitcher, showed up drunk and approached her in front of all the executives present, wanting to know what she was doing here. Ang told him she was working. What are you doing here? Singer repeated. And Ang, then the assistant general manager of the Dodgers, identified herself as such. But Singer was undeterred. He asked where she was from. And Ang, who was born in Indiana and grew up in New York, explained herself again. No, where are you from? Singer insisted, because of course he did, because Asian Americans don't ever get to really be from America. And when Ang explained that her family originally comes from China, Singer proceeded to speak in that Ching Chong gibberish that is viscerally familiar to every single Asian person in the United States. But for a person who was decades into a big league career, that wasn't even the most maddening aspect of this stupid, awful night. I was mad, you know, that I was now going to be known for having been harassed. If I was an Asian guy, would this be happening? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I would have, I would say that there is a greater chance that this would be happening because I was a woman. Kim Ang became the first female GM in major American sports history on Friday when Miami hired her to run the Marlins. The date was November 13th, 2020, meaning that Ang also became the very first Asian American GM in baseball history, exactly 17 years after that stupid, awful night. And to be clear, it should not have taken this long. No woman in baseball had ever gotten a GM interview before Ang did in 2005. And after interviewing to be the GM of the Dodgers and the Mariners and the Padres and the Angels and the Giants, she came up empty every time. Experience was never the problem. Ang, who's spent the last nine years with the commissioner's office, entered baseball in 1990 when she ran the radar gun as a White Sox intern. In 95, she became the youngest person and first woman to ever argue a baseball arbitration case, beating Scott Boris, the final boss of agents. In 98, she became the sport's youngest assistant GM with the Yankees, winning three World Series rings. And for decades, the sport looked at this overqualified Asian-American woman like they looked at all women and all Asian-Americans and kept deciding that the top job was this bridge too far. But today, after 30 years in baseball, that changes. Ang officially has the job she has been chasing since 1990, running radar guns and then farm systems. And now, finally, her very own big league team. That is where Kim Ang comes from. And this, at long last, is what she's doing here. Obviously, we agree with Tori that Kim Ang is one of the most qualified new GMs in a long, long time. As Neil, you detailed in a story on Ang that we published yesterday. This is a groundbreaking, groundbreaking moment for baseball and for American sports more generally, 
But Neil, is there anything in her years of experience that makes her a fitting choice for the Marlins specifically? Well, I mean, I think it's just the general uh, wealth of experience that she has. And I wrote this that, you know, I don't know this for a fact, but she has to be one of the most qualified first time GMs ever, just based on the the length of her track record. Uh, she started in uh, 1990 as a uh, intern with the Chicago White Sox, then became a full time analyst, was assistant director of baseball operations, won three championships with the New York Yankees uh, in that dynasty era. Uh, starting in 1998 uh, and was the youngest assistant GM in baseball at the time uh, and then did that same job for the Dodgers for about a decade and then now, uh, you know, and most recently had been with the uh, MLB Central League office as the senior vice president of baseball operations. So she's kind of done it all, seen it all in baseball, and I can't imagine somebody else that would be stepping into a job, uh, a GM job for the first time with a more sort of basic you know, knowledge of the intricacies of doing that job and firsthand experience of seeing um, that up close than than Kim Ang. Well, it's were you guys surprised at all that that she got the chance? I mean, she's been up for these jobs many times, but has not gotten them many times. So were you surprised that they did finally make this step and, and put a woman in a GM role? Well, I think I'm surprised in the sense that it hasn't happened before. So that's surprising. But just running through her credentials, she's borderline overqualified. Jeff, what what does Aang have to work with in terms of existing players? And what is she likely looking to do to improve the team? Um, Well, I mean, she has the same limitations anyone who sat in that seat has with that team, which is you are going to have to expect a very small payroll, you have very bad attendance. You know this probably won't change attendance, but this is just what you're up against when you're when you're running the Marlins. Um, if anything, I think it puts more pressure to have a very talented and savvy GM because you know that you're going to have a lot of young players that you'll probably not be able to hold on to. And we've seen this time and time again. We saw this with the two you know obvious famous fire sales they had after winning championships. But we also saw, you know, in recent years, losing Christian Yelich, losing Giancarlo Stanton. Um, if you're losing uh, Real Muto, if, you, if you're good on the Marlins, you're not staying on the Marlins. So she <laughs> has a bunch of young players. As Neil pointed out in his article, it's the, an incredibly young pitching staff who she'll have control of for a little while, but then she'll lose. So if anything, you know, she's going to have to juice this for as much as many wins as possible and then you know redeploy but they have a very good farm system too so it'll be interesting to see what they do whether they're willing to spend money i don't know traditionally it's not really their thing but once in a while <laughs> once in a while they'll make an exception um i i wonder if they change things with her or probably not yeah. And I mean, you know, I think you can temper expectations for next season. And that's important because they were one of the luckiest teams in baseball. Uh, if we're just looking at the difference between record and expected record off of um, run differential, they were uh, they had the biggest gap in baseball uh, last year um, and they had some kind of fluky performances, which you sort of need 
anytime you're an unheralded team and you make the playoffs kind of out of nowhere, you need to have guys exceed their previous track record, especially the case when your whole team gets shut down due to COVID in the first like weekend (laughs) of the season. And you're having to kind of scramble just to put together a roster uh, at all. And, and, you know, Miguel Rojas and guys like this kind of came out of the woodwork to have great seasons, but you may not necessarily be able to expect that going forward. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, because she, so she, she's, she's a woman, she's an Asian American. She's also, she's about to turn 52, which is also a little bit unusual right now in baseball. I, I counted up the, the, I went through the GM's ages last night, making me feel very bad about my own I age. Know. That's <laughs> a depressing thing to do. You should not oh, do that. I counted at least five current GMs who are in their 30s. And that's not even counting some of the like, you know, president of baseball operations or whatever. So there's this like, there's a stereotype right now in baseball of the young white male <laughs> analytics genius who's then now, you know, taking over a team. Um, And those guys don't have as much experience in front offices. They usually haven't played. um, And, and they're getting those experience, they're getting those opportunities faster than other, you know, more traditional candidates, even like a traditional, non-traditional candidate, like, like Ng. Jeff, is that, how much of a problem is that, that we're like chasing these like specific kind of, you know, dudes in baseball well, right now. You know, I, I don't know if that's a problem. I mean, with regards to her age, she should have been hired years ago. She should have been hired. She interviewed for the Mariners in 2008. Uh, they went with. Uh, <laughs> I do think, yeah, I mean, we've seen this with sabermetrics and baseball. This is, you know, well-trotted territory at this point that, yeah, it's a copycat league just like a lot of sports and that if teams have success with a more analytics bend approach, then you're going to see a lot of teams trying to do the same Um, and, and, and getting out the kind of old guard, Um, you know, it's, it's essentially that scene in Moneyball over and over Um, just, just not in Oakland. It's everywhere. Yeah, it does. It reminds me a little bit too of the problem in football with the, you know, Sean McVay clones um, hired as coach after he found some success. And then so you got all of these young, um, very inexperienced and not and, and coaches with no, no success at the NFL level, certainly Cliff and some, Kingsbury, and in some cases, Cliff Kingsbury literally next no time. success. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I just I I don't know. I think there's. Like, obviously, I, I believe in, you know, taking a data-driven approach to team building and coaching. But we we also have to be really careful who we, you know, that we're not allowing everyone into those spaces. And then that the, you know, data is then, then becomes synonymous with young white men, which is not uh, it's also wrong like it's that's not better that's 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 a problem in other ways um and i don't know it reminded it reminded me of the story that you did neil with our colleague perry bacon jr about how to fix hiring for coaches in the nfl and 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 diversity in hiring there too 
MLB also does not compare great to leagues in terms of diversity and its leadership. But but hold, just one thing, like age and diversity, if you're going to, you know, seek diversity, you're probably going to have to target young just because most of the people who are older and been around and had jobs, you know, are going to be old white men because that's the way it's been. So I do think, you know, while you will see a lot of young white males hired. I think generally young is going to lead to a more open-minded approach. Yeah. Although I'm thinking of a guy like Eric Bieniemy, who's in his fifties and he's going to get a job though. I mean, he's probably the top NFL coaching candidate right now. Well, he should have gotten a job last year. Yeah. I mean, true. I would love the jets to hire Eric Bieniemy. Eric (laughs) Bieniemy is not going to go to the jets because there's better options. (laughs) I think, I, th- I think that's Houston Texans right. or someone, you know. <laughs> well, and uh, one of our big takeaways was that it's kind of a pipeline problem as much as anything yeah. where, you know, the the um, the path to becoming a coach is sort of cut off to ex players, for instance, in, in football, at least. Um, or it's it's more difficult for them because while they're playing the sport, you got all these McVay types who you know, they, their playing career ends when they flame out in college or whatever. They're not playing in the pros. And so then they latch on and become an assistant or a coordinator uh, and kind of climb that ladder and use connections also, you know, that uh, that may not be available to, um, you know, people from underrepresented groups. And so I think that it's sort of like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg, but there's this great big iceberg uh, of, of problems underneath it that have to be solved before you can kind of get the results that uh, you would want or would would appear, you know, more equitable at the at the um, top of the iceberg. But, you know, Kim Ang, I think, is a great example of somebody that, um you know, it's it's not an anti-analytic hire. Uh, you know, the Yankees under Brian Cashman, nobody talks about it because they had so much money to spend also. And it wasn't like a sexy story to for Michael Lewis to write a book about. But I mean, the Yankees have been at the at the forefront of analytics going back to the to the 90s. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a backlash against some of these like young, you know, 30 something white Ivy League, whatever the typology you want to talk about uh, of, of those hires uh, that you were looking up uh, are because like lord knows there's enough backlash against analytics in general uh you know people are looking for backlash in every way that they can anyway uh and so you know i think that um questioning some of the roster decisions or questioning you know uh decisions that are made using numbers uh is always uh, on the appetite of of people so if they can kind of you know wrap this into it too then i think uh it'll it'll be another reason to turn away from the stats thanks a lot kevin cash (laughs) kevin cash is ruining it for everyone (laughs) i'll still say though i'd rather have my teams take a risk on someone uh, who hasn't held a job like this, um, whether that's coach or GM or anything, then just going back to the retreads, you know, we like give Bill O'Brien another job because he failed tremendously at both GM and coach that, yeah, sure. I mean, it's the only industry where we really keep rehiring people who were abject failures at the job already. Well, and isn't Ang like a perfect uh, kind of the perfect hire in that sense is that like, 
she's been a part of successful teams. So you have that experience factor, which I assume is the only reason that you have like a Bill O'Brien type. We're mixing our sport metaphors here, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like, there's so much that has to do with like knowing how to run a team, just like the nuts and bolts of like how to do it in the day to day and like managing that office. Uh, well, who better to to have than somebody that's like been in that environment for literal decades and yet also hasn't demonstrated any history of like horrible f- ups in the way that like your Bill O'Brien's have or whatever. So it's like the best of all worlds. She knows how to run a team and hasn't glaringly f-ed up. <laughs> so true. I also think I think. When it comes to coaching hires, one of the things we can do to change mindsets about that is to have different people in the roles that are doing the hiring. And so you're not just always hiring someone who looks exactly I mean, a lot of times right now, GMs and owners will hire the people who look like them. And so having different people in those roles can also make a huge difference, I think. It's a start anyway, and it's it's one way to attack this. And I mean... This is a great move for the Marlins for a million reasons, a lot of baseball reasons, but also what it means. Is this the the most you've ever liked Derek Jeter, Sarah? Be honest. It's this is I'm not gonna lie. This is tough. This is hard. This is hard <laughs> for me. Um, I mean, look, he's a he's a better owner, CEO, whatever he is, than he was a shortstop. I I feel very confident wow. saying that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, let's. I mean, look. Let's. I. I love this move. Um, let's not give him too much credit. You know. Let, let's. Uh, let's. Uh, he was balance a terrible shortstop, out. guys. It's. It's fine. He's literally by fine. the stats, the worst ever, uh, yeah, according exactly. to uh, Baseball yeah. Reference's defensive war. Not that I'm memorized that factoid uh, <laughs> or anything. Um, but I'm yeah, I mean, we could bring I, this back to Jeter. I'm glad about that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can put a pin in this discussion for now. We'll be back in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. We are delighted to be joined this week by phenomenal 538 copy editor, Santul Nurker. Hey, Santul. How's it going? Hello, hello. It's going well. So you and Neil have teamed up for a rabbit hole for us this week. What have you come up with? So Neil and I were inspired by the recent anniversary, November 11th, of Michael Red's 2006 57-point explosion against the Utah Jazz. Red, you know, played 12 seasons in the NBA and was a solid player, and he was not a bench warmer by any means. But he's also maybe not who you first think about when you think of 50-point scorers. You think of Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. Um, So Neil and I dug into some of the numbers about some of the more random 50-point performers, and we found some interesting nuggets. Not the team, of course. Um, Well, in some cases... The Denver Nuggets, yeah. Some, some did play for the Denver Nuggets. Um, <laughs> but Neil, do you have any uh, findings from the world of random 50-point games? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, uh, like you mentioned, we were so inspired by Michael Red because uh, for some reason I was looking at some ESPN, I think it was a tweet where they were like, this is the anniversary. And I was like, oh, that's the anniversary. I'm always forgetting Michael Red's 57-point game. <laughs> also, Michael Michael <laughs> Red scored 57 in a game. What do you get someone for that anniversary? Is that the, that's the, the you know, the gold anniversary? The, yeah, I don't know. You get them a Michael Red uh, Bucks jersey. There you go. Um, but anyway, so... 
we were kind of looking at the the players that would stand out as perhaps being the least uh, notable 50-point scorers. Uh, in fact, we should say Michael Red actually scored 50 in a game twice. He had the 57 in 2006, but he also scored 52 against the Bulls in March of 2007. So he had two 50-point games in the same season, the 2006-07 season. And uh, like you said, Santul, uh, Michael Red, you know, maybe I was not giving him enough credit uh, <laughs> when I was thinking of him as a random 50-point club member, because in his career... He scored 19 points per game. That's only 0.3 fewer than Tim Duncan, for instance. Clay Thompson <laughs> has 19.5. He's the owner of uh, three different 50-point games. So Michael Red, not, not really even that obscure by the standards of the 50-point game club. And uh, to prove it, I looked at uh, all of the 50-point games since the merger in 1976, uh, there were 344 50-point games by 119 players, and the average 50-point scorer in his career had 22.7 points per game. So Michael Red, a little bit worse than uh, as a scorer than the average 50-point scorer uh, since the merger, but that season he had 26.7 points per game, which is only a little bit less than the overall average for players who scored 50 in a game. They scored 27.4 on average during their 50-point explosion season, whatever we want to call it. Uh, so Michael Red, as it turns out, is like kind of a normal 50-point score. But the guys that truly I was kind of thinking of when I was thinking of Michael Red are really more in the Corey Brewer or Tony <laughs> Delk or Tracy Murray Club. Those three guys uh, all... Uh, had they had 50 point games Brewer in 2014 Delk in 2001 and Tracy Murray in 1998 while maintaining a career points per game average of single digits they they all scored in fact uh, nine or fewer points per game in their careers which is more than even Willie Burton remember uh, Willie Burton of <laughs> of the the 76ers against the Miami Heat in 1994 dropped 53 uh, but even he scored 10.2 points per game in his career. Dana Barros scored 10.3. Terrence Ross scored 10.8 uh, in their career. So uh, these are really more of, of, I think, what I had in my head as being the Michael Red All-Stars, the guys that just out of nowhere had a 50-point uh, explosion. Another one, though, that really stood out to me when looking at this was Jamal Crawford's 51-point game on April 9th, 2019, while playing for the Phoenix Suns against the Dallas Mavericks, which, Santula, you pointed out was Dirk Nowitzki's uh, final game mm -hmm. in the NBA. Jamal Crawford sent him off uh, with that game in a season in which he scored only 7.9 points per game for the entire season uh, in, in 2019. That's the only 50-point game by a player who, in a season in which they, uh, they averaged single-digit points. The next lowest was Terrence Ross, uh, in 2014 had it had 10.4 points per game uh including the playoffs so jamal crawford really in a class of his own scoring only 7.9 points per game in 2019 but gosh darn it he dropped 51 in in the last game uh of of the season but santuel you were also digging into some more measures beyond points per game uh about how to measure obscure slash random 50 point scores well yeah so well with first with crawford that made him the oldest person to score 50 points in a game and also made him the first person to score 
uh, 50 points in four different franchises. So if nothing else, you can bank on him to get you a few buckets, even if he's, I don't know how old is he is now, but he must be like 40. I don't know. Well, he was 39 years old and 20 days on the day of his 51-point game. It's insane. According to basketball reference. It's absolutely insane. Um, well, so another thing I was looking at, well, what caught my eye was just how you score 50 points has changed a little bit. So uh, someone like Tony Delk getting to 50 points, attempting one three-pointer in in the, in the game was, like I think, pretty remarkable. Uh, Andre Miller only taking and making one three when he got hit to, to 50 points back in 2010. And then I was also looking at more of... Uh, what basketball reference, they have a probability index for uh, who gets into the Hall of Fame and who I, I basically looked at who is likely to make into the Hall of Fame. And Jamal Crawford is the he has the most 50 point games of the of somebody who is under 50 percent to get into the Hall of Fame. I think his <laughs> chances are at like 0.3 percent or something like that right now. So he's not very likely to get into the Hall of Fame. After that, you have Gilbert Arenas, Bradley Beal. He still has some time to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, then you start getting into somebody like Devin Booker. That's also more debatable. But then Phil Smith. DeMarcus Cousins has two 50-point games. Of course, Michael Redd. Tom Chambers should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, but he's not likely to get in there. Wait, what's... what's... What was Redd's probability? Yeah. Uh, I don't think he registered, actually. I don't think he, he has no probability yeah. of making the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> I think Tom Chambers is at least at like 20%. So you, you're really getting down, I think, into players who are unlikely to make it. Uh, and something I thought was interesting is that someone like Shaq only has three 50-point games, not counting the postseason. And same thing with Dirk. He only has two. So... I mean, in general, it's hard for big men to get to those uh, to those high scoring games. That's so funny. I, I would have expected Shaq to have more for some reason. Even I mean, you're right. The thing about big men. But I I still have this image of him, you know, just going off and like taking a million free throws. I guess he didn't make them. Yeah, that was the whole point. <laughs> yeah, the free throws are like a big underrated aspect of getting to 50. It seems like in the in the data set, the average uh, 50 point game contained 12 and a half made free throws on 14.4 attempts. So you have to, you know, get to the line a lot and then you have to make James a good Harden. number then to get over the top. So James Harden is sort of your quintessential, especially with the threes. Also, I'm trying to figure out how many he has in his career, unless you know off the top of your head. No, it's a lot. Oh, he has a ton. <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, let's see. He has 23 in his career. Wow. Uh, but he's breaking the mold for this because obviously a uh, career average of 24.9 uh, points per game uh, will get you uh, far in terms of the 50 uh, point club. Definitely. So I wonder how many 50 point games Shaq could have had if he made like half of his free throws. Now I want to go through his <laughs> game logs and like do the math. Yeah. We should look up like lost 50 point games. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the 50 point games that might have been, if you had just made a league average, we're not even asking you to make all your free throws, right? Just yeah. Make them at a league average clip and see how many you could have gotten to. I feel like LeBron would have a lot more 50 point games. Uh, if he made like 80% of his free throws. How many has he had? He has had 12 in the regular season. So I I don't know. Like It feels like he's had a number of games. I remember there have been a couple of playoff games where he's like at 48 or 49. And so he had 51 against Golden State a couple of years ago. But that was notable because I thought two of his 
best playoff games before that he was at 48 or 49 some guys just aren't focused on the stat sheet you know they're they're, <laughs> they're like the uh, the opposite of that time ricky davis knew that he needed a rebound for a triple double and shot it at his own basket <laughs> to get the rebound <laughs> uh, see that's that's the kind of magic that we celebrate in the rabbit hole the guys who are just like 48's fine for me no we don't care about you <laughs> you gotta yeah, work we yeah. want the guys that are acutely aware of exactly <laughs> how many points they have down the stretch and are like, you know, I need to get into this club so they can talk about me in a rabbit hole. Exactly. <laughs> there, It's all Dang. about hot, t- hot take down glory here for these guys. And we love you for it. Um, all right. This was very fun. And in just a month, we'll have uh, more NBA games and more possibilities for random 50 point scorers. Can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Love it. All right. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast player of choice. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Santul, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.